Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Jim Thompson here. I hope you guys are having a wonderful Sunday so far. I hope you're excited to be back together in person in this room next week for those of you who can make it. And I, uh, to say that I am excited is the understatement uh, of the decade. Also, perhaps you have seen uh, on social media or you've heard here on a Sunday morning that the past couple weeks what we've done is we've drawn attention to different people who have worked super, super hard over the past few months, but usually it's been somebody on our worship staff passing out the gratitude to these individuals. So today, I specifically want to thank our worship staff and our extended worship team, and if you know anybody on that team, go ahead and show them some love, send them a text or an email. You can even go to fellowshipgreenville.org and maybe send them or drop them a line for leading us well during this time. Even this morning, I'm super, super grateful for Matt's concentrated time of prayer and lament. That kind of posture is more than needed in these days. And so along with a regular sermon today, you get a brief uh, bonus intro devotion thing. And, And this is simply me trying to think about all that's happening and trying to think about God at the same time. God, within himself, is a glorious whirlwind of tri-unity. He is joy and power and love and truth and kindness unparalleled. He is three persons and one essence, three who's and one what. His very being is both equality and diversity. All God, but also distinctly Father, Son, and Spirit, a lavish, loving community within himself. And so what does he do? He creates humans in his image to share in his happy love. Different genders, different skin tones, different shapes and sizes and laughs and smiles and hair and eyes and gifts and abilities. And humanity itself was to enjoy and reflect the equality and diversity of its creator, but we have grievously failed. And this failure is individualistic. We are each culpable and accountable to him. He is our standard and we have all, each one of us, sinned. And this failure is also systemic. The systems and paradigms and edifices, social edifices that we have constructed have failed. We have tried to rebuild Babel again and again with no success. But there are individualistic and systemic sins of commission, actively committing and doing things that we shouldn't do. And there are individualistic and systemic sins of omission, passively omitting and neglecting things that we should do. And the point in all of this is that each one of us and all of us as a whole, we are desperately needy. We need help. And so God came in the person of Jesus to enter the pain and the violence and the sinfulness of our world, to sympathize with us, identify with us, and to save us from ourselves. And we don't deserve his rescuing love and grace. So Jesus is God's invitation back into the glorious divine whirlwind of, of love and unity, community and diversity. That's what we were made for. And in these dark and heavy days, our, tasks as, our task as believers is to follow Jesus' lead. And here's how. Jesus moved toward 
the mess. That's what he did. And we should do the same even if it's not comfortable for us. So prayerfully and patiently and graciously, we should, we should listen and we should learn and we should have compassion and be open to change. I've talked to white Christians this past week who have previously said, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but this season has brought them to tears and repentance because they realize that they actually do. I've spoken to godly black friends and ministry leaders in the past week who have talked about how they're not quite sure what to do and they're kind of afraid. I've talked to godly officers and law enforcement people this past week about how they're a little confused too and they're also afraid. And these things remind me that scripture says the perfect love of the gospel casts out all fear and that's what we need. I'm all about better legislation that helps our country in these times, but here's what I need us to know. Even better legislation is only a temporary service, a service that we should want and that we should work towards, but only Jesus brings lasting and eternal healing. Only at the cross is there forever restoration and salvation. And for those of us who are giving our lives to Jesus in faith, our inheritance is Eden again, like a new creation where Jesus reigns in full justice and full peace with his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. And as the church, we are supposed to be serving up appetizers to that new creation meal where we go out of our way to prize and protect the God-given dignity and worth and value of every human life. And so, Absolutely, yes, 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 100%. We shouldn't demonize people we disagree with. And yes, despair that it will never change is just as dangerous as denial that it's a problem, right? But in and around and through and above and beyond all of these things, it is the gospel of Jesus that gives us hope to patiently love and see the equality and diversity of Eden come to life all around us. And that's what we need and that's what we're made for. So Holy Spirit, give us the the wisdom and give us the clarity and the grace to that end. And help us to know what to do and say in all of this to put the fame and the glory of Jesus on display. Please, 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 Holy Spirit, help us. Amen. Now, if you remember uh, from last week, this is, Right now, today, our second week of a summer series called Disciple. And what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is not a separate conversation than what we just talked about. Lovingly being the church in these fragile days goes hand in hand with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the more we talk about discipleship today, the more I think that uh, you'll see that that is exactly the case. Charlie mentioned this last week, and we're gonna talk about, uh, this is what we're gonna do this summer, we're gonna talk about discipleship in three ways. There are dozens of excellent and helpful ways to talk about discipleship, but this is the practical one that we're gonna use at Fellowship Greenville here this summer. Discipleship is doing life with Jesus, doing life in community, and doing life on mission. Seems pretty simple, right? This could be, these could be called the three rhythms of a disciple with Jesus in community and on mission. Everybody can remember that, pretty simple. 
But it also helps me to think of the triangle as like a three-legged stool because a, a stool can't stand on just two legs. So if you commune deeply with Jesus and other people who are doing the same, that's in community, but never partner with Jesus on his mission, then the stool is gonna fall. Or you can't rightly be on mission and with people and not also know and love Jesus. Each of these three helps define the other and gives a disciple stability. They're all discipleship and they're all also distinct three in one, if you will, no shocker there. And so <clears throat> on Sundays for three weeks, we're gonna focus on with Jesus, three weeks we're gonna do in community and three on mission. And so today we get to talk about life with Jesus. That's where, what we're gonna be considering this morning. But before we dive into what that's all about, here's a line uh, that just jumped off the page and caught my eye as I was preparing for the message this week as I was studying this past week. This is from Jamie Smith's book, You Are What You Love, which is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. It's a really powerful approach to some of the things that we're gonna be talking about this summer. And in this book, <coughs> Smith writes, Christian discipleship that is going to be intentional and formative needs to be attentive to all the rival formations that we are immersed in. It's really nice, it's really good, really thoughtful. But his phrase, rival formations, is about what Charlie said last week. <clears throat> that we're always, always being discipled by something or someone. Those are the rival formations. Life with Jesus is, is not lived in a neutral vacuum. It's always lived in a world with competing rabbis vying for our attention. Like your, your phone or your reputation or your political party or the news, or making more money, or physical fitness, or self-help. And there's a temptation to be discipled by these things more than we're discipled by Jesus. Now, are these things wrong? <clears throat> On their own, of, of course not. But they become wrong if you're a Christian, and they're the primary source of life, learning, and transformation for you. And that's why I think Smith is right, that we have to be attentive to all other rival formations. And I actually think that one of the main enemies to true Christian discipleship is a bad definition of discipleship. And, and here's what I mean. Some of you think that Jesus is important enough and strong enough and good enough to take you to heaven when you die, but he's not good enough and worthy enough to change your life right now. You, you believe that. Now, you wouldn't say it like that, but deep in your gut, you, you actually kind of feel those things. And some people think this kind of stuff because they're just ignorant of what the Bible actually says. But, and this is the more dangerous one, others think like this because they know that if Jesus is worthy enough and good enough and important enough to change their lives right now, that might actually mean discomfort for them. And we love, we love worshiping at the idol of comfort. Like we don't want Jesus to come into our hearts and clean up and rearrange the furniture because that might mean we come face to face with motives and lusts and prejudices and self-righteousness and lack of faith and unbelief. Like we're fine with Jesus handling our eternity, but we often try to manage things on our own until then which usually just further flagrantly proves our need for him. And beyond this, the Bible, sorry, literally says nothing about going to heaven when you die. The Bible is a story about how heaven and earth belong together 
And the climax of its story is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth in King Jesus. And being his disciple means to, this is what Charlie said, carry on his kingdom vision for the world in your life right now on earth as in heaven. And this is where the with Jesus language comes into play. Jesus can take care of your eternity because he takes care of your today. In fact, you can't have one without the other. Just think about it. Your eternity includes your today. And the way you know he takes care of your today is that he is with you. Matthew chapter one, right at the beginning, the angel said, you should call his name Emmanuel because that means God with us. And then you go to the very last chapter of Matthew, Matthew Matthew 28, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the entire gospel of Matthew is bookended with this idea of divine witness. But what God has done in Jesus to be with us, watch this, it creates the call for us to be with Jesus. Mark chapter three, Charlie talked about this last week. And he, Jesus, appointed 12 so that they might be with him, Mark 3, 14. And this reality is supposed to change things. Jesus being God with us and us doing life with Jesus, this reality will will silence the rival rabbis that numbingly disciple us and it will propel us into trust and obedience and intimacy, the kind that we were created for. That's true discipleship. So here's my question in all this, and it's a pretty simple one. We know very plainly, like Charlie talked about last week, what life with Jesus looked like for Jesus' first followers. It's clear as day in the New Testament. But what about for us today? If we truly experience God's nearness in Christ, what shape will our lives take? Like in the absolute craziness that is 2020 here in Greenville, South Carolina, what does life with Jesus look like? Or to use Jamie Smith's language, how should being with Jesus as his disciples form us? That's what we need to think about this morning. If we're doing life with Jesus, how should we change? That's our question for today. And Matthew chapter 10 is our passage today, and it will help us answer this question. Our exact passage will be Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. We'll look at a few other places, but we're gonna camp out here. Matthew chapter 10, verses one through 25. I'm gonna read the whole thing straight through, and after I do, I'll say the word of God for the people of God, and then it's your turn and your line, hopefully out loud in your homes, uh, is thanks be to God, and let's say it with gratitude because he's so gracious to give us his truth in scripture. So if we're doing life with Jesus, how should we change? Matthew chapter 10, verse one. And he called to himself his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse five. 
These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, now give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace, your shalom come upon it. If it's not worthy, then let your peace, your shalom return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, because it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, Father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master, yet it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, Uh, there is so, so much here. Like wringing out the soaked washcloth that is Matthew 10 could take forever. And so we're not gonna cover every detail today. But if we press on this passage just a little bit and we understand what Matthew's doing with this passage, then we'll have a direct answer to our question. So so very broadly, just an overview of this passage here. Um, Discipleship in, in chapter 10, verses one through four, in the first few verses, it's, it's a community project. So Jesus didn't call Peter and hang out with him and disciple him for a few weeks and be like, all right, dude, see you, you're done. And call your brother in here, I'll disciple him for a few weeks. Next, James. He didn't do that. He just didn't do one-on-one down the list. It's, it's a communal and covenantal and mutual endeavor and project. And I can gladly hit pause on that because we're gonna hit, do three weeks on what it means to be a disciple in community. We're gonna do that rhythm coming up. Then starting in verse five and following, being a disciple includes a content piece to it. Jesus says in verse seven that you need to announce God's kingdom is at hand, so that means certain things. But there's also a a restoration piece to it. Freedom from spiritual and physical oppression is what he calls them to in 10, five through 15. Then beginning in verse 16, 
Discipleship is a, a tightrope act. It's about balancing. Be like snakes, also be like doves. You're not gonna know what to say, but I'm gonna give you what to say. It's the spirit who's gonna say it. Just kidding, it's you, but it's the spirit, but it's you. Your family might disown you, but I'm your true family, right? Really, really intense stuff in 16 through 23. It's a balancing act. But here's what I want to show you about Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 <coughs> is not random encouragement about what disciples should be doing. That's, that's not what it is. It's not just an FYI about what might happen if you're, if you're kind of in with, with Jesus. That's, that's not it. Matthew 10 is the very specific fruit that grows on the tree of being with Jesus. That's what it is. We just read, uh, what we just read right here, it, it's all the precise result of him being with us and us being with him. <coughs> Those two ideas already bookend the divine witness. It already bookends the entire book of Matthew. So why wouldn't, all, why wouldn't it also be part of the point here? But let me show you what I mean for just a second. And so we're going to have to rewind in Matthew for just a minute. But I've got it on the screen for you. Here we go. <coughs> Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, this is a summary of Jesus' entire ministry and his entire message. And then he calls his disciples so that they can be with him because he's gonna show them what kingdom come looks like, what it's all about. And then in Matthew 4, 23, it says, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, if you go to the end of Matthew chapter nine, verse 35, it says the exact same thing as 423. Matthew 9, 35, here it is. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. <clears throat> so why does Matthew repeat himself? Because everything in between those two verses is what kingdom come looks like. There is a content piece about what it's like to live as citizens of God's kingdom. That's why Matthew says Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And then there's a restoration or a caring piece, ministering to others and seeking restoration for their lives. That's why Matthew says Jesus was healing every kind of disease and affliction. So Matthew chapters five through seven are the first part, the content piece. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard of that. Chapters eight and nine are the second part where Jesus cares for people and they experience life change. I love how Luke talks about all this stuff. He says Jesus was a prophet. He, he was a teacher, mighty in word and mighty in deed, right? And that means that kingdom come looks like mighty words and mighty works, right? Mighty words, Matthew 5 through 7, and mighty works, Matthew 8 and 9. This is why Matthew, the gospel writer, repeats himself. Because these are the two legs on which Jesus walked as king among us, uniquely bringing God's reign from heaven to earth. And these two legs on which Jesus walked, you can, you can actually talk about them uh, in a dozen ways. And I love coming up with kind of new ways to talk about these. <clears throat> and there's a content piece. And a caring piece, mighty words and mighty works. You can talk about heralding, not like Uncle Harold, but like Harold, H-E-R-A-L-D, like the old word for proclaim. There's a heralding piece and a healing piece. Believing and behaving, doctrine and duty, teaching and reaching. But the point is, however you say it, Jesus is not hopping on one leg as he brings the kingdom from heaven to earth. 
rather these two realities define the presence of the kingdom of God as it has come to us in Jesus. Now, here's how all of this relates to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is with his disciples in chapter four. And Matthew chapter five, verse one says that they, his disciples, went with him up on the mountain for the sermon. And then they were there with him for all of the mighty works in chapters eight and nine. And so, chapter 10 of Matthew, watch this. It's Jesus passing them the baton. It's their turn to do what he has been doing. Discipleship is never just caught or taught. It's always both. And please don't overemphasize one or the other. And both require being with Jesus. So Jesus looks at them and he goes, hey, you're ball, right? That's what, he, that's what he does. John Wooden is probably the greatest college basketball coach of all time from UCLA in the, in the mid 20th century. And he said, of all the books on all the shelves, it's what the teachers are themselves. So do good teachers teach ideas or live by example? Absolutely. Same with Jesus. He's the best teacher ever. <clears throat> so, What did we just read in Matthew chapter 10? We read about how Jesus' disciples were now going to do all the exact same stuff that he had been doing precisely because they had been with him. Look at chapter 10 again. Look at verse seven. Look, look, look. Proclaim as you go, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. That's not a new message. That's exactly what they saw Jesus doing. Now look at verse, verse eight. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And if that sounds just too far-fetched for you, I'll, I'll help a little bit. Feed the hungry, love the poor, care for the broken. That's not something new. That's what they saw Jesus doing. And so here's, here's the big idea. Here's the main thing that I want us to see. This is the broadest possible answer to our question. <clears throat> if you're doing life, if we're doing life with Jesus, how should we change? Here it is. The ultimate result of life with Jesus is life like Jesus, right? Might sound simple, but I think this is the deep end of the theological swimming pool, okay, right? The ultimate result of life with Jesus is life like Jesus. And I kinda hate that that sounds like something that would get a few hits on Twitter, that's just dumb. I want you to see this in the Bible. Look at verse 25, Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 25, look. It is enough for the disciple to be like his rabbi and the servant like his master. This is, this is Genesis 1. This, we're created to be like him and enjoy and reflect all that he is. That's the goal, that we would be with Jesus so much that we become like Jesus to the point that other people would notice. And that's where we should want to be. But somehow... Many of us would still rather be discipled by whichever news outlet makes us feel the most self-righteous. Why? Stop. Instead, this is what you need to do. You need to do some inventory. You need to ask yourself, do I deliberately spend time with Jesus in his word, in prayer, with his people, talking about him, Am I with him when I care for others or pursue truth or just simply ask him what he's doing around me? And if you do watch the news, is that fuel for anger or prayer? Do you ever just take a walk and talk out loud to Jesus? Yeah, you might look weird. I say give it a shot. 
Do you, in honesty, pour out your heart to him, whether it's confession or confusion or gratitude or hope, and do you do that with other people? This is what we're talking about. He wants that. He is not God with us for us to to neglect being with him. And not only does he want you to spend time with him, but he wants you to do it so that you'll be like him and extend his kingdom love to others. That's what he wanted for his friends in Matthew 10, and, and, and I think that's, that's exactly what he wants uh, for us today. Um, <clears throat> in my 20s, when I was a youth pastor, um, I had no clue what I was doing. Shocker. Uh, and I thought that all I really needed to do, like <clears throat> my game plan, my ministry philosophy was, dude, all you, all you need to do is be weird and happy and spiritual and these students will think that you're cool and then people will praise me for what a great job I'm doing. Uh, I, I was at a Southern Baptist church down the road a little bit in Moore, South Carolina and I quickly fell in love with the 25 or, or 30 students that were there, some of whom I, I still keep in touch with today. Um, I started in May and I'll never forget, ever forget my first night there and I'll never forget some of the questions that these students asked me as they got to know me and Sarah. I also still have very vivid memories <clears throat> that summer of, of pool parties and stuff. Like when I play it back in my mind, it's a lot like the Sandlot. Like it was just kind of really sweet and nostalgic. But I have very vivid memories of that summer of which nerdy ninth grade boys had crushes on which girls, which is you need to step up your game if you're a student pastor. That's part of the deal. But here's, here's the crazy, strange thing. By the end of that calendar year, <clears throat> I started in May, but by the end of that calendar year, something terrifying began to happen and it made me realize that I had to do more than be weird, happy, and spiritual. By the end of the year, there was a solid contingency of these students that started to listen to the music that I listened to. And I just thought, oh cool, they're, they're appreciating what I appreciate. They had never heard of this band before and now they're listening to this, so that's good. Everybody needs some punk rock. Woohoo, that, that's really great. But then, I would hear them say things like I say things, which also made me realize how dumb I sounded. But the kicker, the absolute, and it hurt, man, is when they started to dress and act like me, these poor kids, right? Again, this is terrifying. And so what I slowly realized is, <clears throat> you know what? I'm discipling them. I'm just not doing a good job at it. They didn't start to act like me on day six, but they did on month six. Why? Because for them, the gateway drug to likeness was withness. They spent time with me. And that's the exact same in Matthew's gospel. And you know what? I hope it's the same for us. The ultimate result of life with Jesus should be life like Jesus. Okay, Jim, I get that. But I, but I have a question. What is this likeness need to include? Like what, the, the like Jesus part, what does it entail? Well, uh, lucky for us, we've already said it. We need to walk on the same two legs that Jesus did when he initially brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. <clears throat> Remember, content, peace, and caring peace. Mighty words and mighty works. Equality and diversity. Justice and peace. Heralding and healing. Believing and behaving. Duty and doctrine. Teaching and reaching. Two legs. And on one level, I don't care how you define it because it's different everywhere. Look down at Matthew 10, 16. Look, look, look. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. 
walking on these two legs is hard because it often feels like a contradiction, like go be snake doves. That's weird and hard, but it's exactly what we're called to. And however we define it, my foremost concern is not the specific wording, but it's that we do it, that we're with Jesus to the point of being like Jesus. And my absolute favorite way to talk about this is how John talks about it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only unique son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's everything we're saying in three words, grace and truth. Truth is the content piece, the mighty words, the heralding. Grace is the caring, the mighty works, and the healing. And these kinds of realities have to define your life more than who you vote for. Think about it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are apprenticed to him and he is your master, can you be described in these terms, grace and truth? Do you magnify grace? Do you, in your life, in your relationships, make a big deal of unconditional love? and compassion, and patience, and empathy, and mercy? Do you seek to understand truth? Not preference, not propaganda, not opinion. God's truth revealed in scripture, revealed in Jesus, about who he is, who we are, and what he's doing. Do you want to apply truth graciously? Do you want to pursue truth humbly? You will if you're spending time with Jesus. Do you want that? Do you desire that? Or would you prefer that he not rearrange your heart because you kind of like how it's set up? Even though you fail at it, you like trying to manage your today and your heart. And this leads me to one last idea. And that is the bridge between withness and likeness. How does one lead to the other? Like I can, I can see that it does in Matthew's gospel like we just looked at, but Jim, what if I spend this time with Jesus and I, I do the stuff that you just said, but then my life doesn't look a lot like Jesus? What, what's the deal with that? Where's the problem at? Jamie Smith again, and he's really helpful. This is also from his book, You Are What You Love. He writes, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. His teaching doesn't touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. To follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi who teaches us how to love. To be a disciple of Jesus is to enroll in the school of charity. Isn't that so good? Here's what Smith is getting at. Withness leads to likeness when your loves are changed and when your wants are transformed. 
the, the bridge between being with Jesus and living like Jesus is a bridge of you trusting him to change your desires, to do a deep, clean renovation project on your heart, on your longings. Are you okay with that? Do you want to have your wants changed by Jesus? Careful. Do you want that? I think that's what's happening with the force of Matthew's story. These, these disciples, they spent so much time with Jesus, witnessing God's love and power and grace and truth in his life that they slowly began to long for the same thing. Their desire to, to partake in his kind of life grew more and more as they witnessed it. And then they eventually carried on Jesus' kingdom ministry. That's chapter 10, just like he did. Is that what's happening with your story? Are you communing deeply with Jesus? Do you want what he wants to the point that you live like he lived? This is, this is exactly what we were made for. This is, this is how we combat all rival formations. And this is how we most honor Jesus. <clears throat> this, is, this is discipleship. Discipleship is, <clears throat> is taking your finances and your family and your physical fitness. It's taking your, your phone addiction, your, your porn addiction, your alcohol addiction. It's taking politics and violence and racism and riots and injustice and pandemics and preferences and parenting and conflicts and relationships. It's taking all of that and setting it in front of you and looking at it and saying, Jesus, what do you want for this? And then listening carefully to him and spending time with him to the point that his wants become yours and then you go live like him concerning all of these issues. This is the sweetest and freshest fruit of life with Jesus and this is what he's calling us to. Verse 25, it is enough. It is good and fitting and right that a disciple be like his teacher. And here's where I want to be very, very clear. Uh, Discipleship is absolutely a cattle prod to get you moving, to get you going, for your soul to wake up, for you to reorient all of life around Jesus, for you to take up your cross daily and pursue him. But, 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 discipleship isn't built on the foundation of your willpower. It is built on the foundation of God's initiative in Christ. And we've already said this. What God has done in Jesus to be with us creates the call for us to be with Jesus. This is building block number one. This is the foundation entry level. We have to get this. The gospel of God with us creates a discipleship of us with God. And we see these things come crashing and rushing together primarily at the cross of Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that he came to be with us by being like us. It says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same so that through death, the cross, he might destroy the one who held the power of death, that is, the devil. 
Jesus came to be with us in all of the sin and in all of the hate and all of the mess and all of the evil of this world. He wasn't a spectator or a bystander. Rather, he took it all into himself for us to free us from its power. He came to be with us and go to the cross for us so that both oppressed and oppressor would find grace and salvation in him so that we would all see our need and we would see the remedy for our need in him. He came as a human like us and stood in our place so that we could have our Garden of Eden job description back to be like him, to be image bearers. And this restoration of reflection happens when we trust him and depend on him and learn from him. And I love that it's a reminder that all of discipleship hangs on the teacher and our teacher is also our savior. I love that. So here's the deal. Fellowship Greenville, this is our gospel today that our rabbi is also our rescuer. That we can draw near to God and live life with him because he has first drawn near to us in Christ. And if we take a deep breath and we spend time with him, I believe that we'll slowly see our wants transformed and by grace we'll see his life being lived through ours. Wouldn't that be incredible? I think it's possible, and I think that's what he wants. And today I hope and pray that that is exactly what you want. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we're in dire need of your help today. We need you to make us more and more and more impressed with Jesus and enthralled with Jesus. Blow us away with his grace and truth and beauty and love and justice and peace and power. May, may his glory and may his kingdom be seen and experienced in our lives and in our world in, and in Greenville, South Carolina. Jesus, we love you and we want to love <clears throat> being with you and all that that includes and entails. And so Jesus, thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you're God with us. We love you so much, Jesus. You're the best. Amen.